God's reading is from Jeremiah, chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. The Lord's wonderful promise. The Lord said, I made a wonderful promise to Israel and Judah, and the days are coming when I will keep it. I promise that the time will come when I appoint a king from the family of David, a king who will be honest and rule with justice. In those days, Judah will be safe. Jerusalem will have a peace and will be named the Lord gives justice. This is the word of the Lord. I think the offering bags will, will go around while I'm preaching, and I'm never distracted by the giving of money. So just <laughs> go ahead and uh, just let them keep going. That's, that's good. Well, tonight, one of the things that we're thinking about uh, as we begin Advent, begin the church year, is, is hope. Where do we find hope? Uh, maybe just my profession, kind of an occupational hazard, but, but it seems to me that during December, uh, I have more conversations about hope uh, or the lack of hope uh, than any other time in the year. And I'm um, just thinking of a, of a couple of them. I, uh, our friend Daryl Arnold over at Overcoming Believers, I, I said, Daryl, call me when uh, one of your people's shot. Um, I don't want you to have to go through that alone. He's called me three times uh, last week. And uh, I asked him, I said, how, how many has this been this month? He, he said, seven. Uh, he said, two of the boys, one of the boys that was shot is in his church, his family's in his church. The other one uh, that shot him was also in his church. So this afternoon he faced going into a congregation where both families were grieving together. Sandy uh, taught one of the young men that was killed. So I said, Daryl, where do you find hope as you go from funeral to funeral like that? I think of other conversations. Uh, you graciously give me the, the freedom to do a little bit of writing uh, Try to do a little writing for the paper. It's one of the ways I seek the peace of the city. And I, I've been working on a story on mental illness. And I, tomorrow morning, I'm, I'm going to interview uh, Robin Maples. And uh, Robin's son, Jackson, uh, began to manifest a mental illness when he was a sophomore in high school. Uh, led them into eight years of just hell, unbelievable suffering, uh, until he uh, hung himself in April, and uh, she's agreed to uh, let me tell her story for the new Sentinel so uh, our community might understand a little bit more about how hard it is to have a mentally ill loved one. Um, and I prayed for her a lot over Thanksgiving, and, and uh, how, do you, how, how do you find hope? <laughs> that, to me, that's a pretty rough question. Sometimes it's not, it's not as massive as that, a conversation with a person who's single and just said, I just feel really lonely this time of year. Uh, talk with someone else who said, you know, um, I, 
some bad things have happened to me in December, and for whatever reason, I, I really remember them this time of year. So, what do we do when we're struggling to find hope? Well, we're not the first Christians to ask that question. Uh, long ago, our church fathers and mothers set aside the first Sunday of Advent to remind us of where our hope is. And that's really the theme of the, the first night of the Christian year. And over the centuries, the church has also identified certain texts that the church turns to to remind her of where her hope is. And uh, the prophecy that we turn to tonight is, is one of them. Jeremiah is writing these words from prison. Uh, King Zedekiah is weary of his uh, negativity and uh, has put him in jail, tried to shut him up. And, and as Jeremiah writes, the Babylonian armies come over the wall, if you can imagine this. And so I don't know if he has a scroll or I don't know quite how he, how he was writing, but he's sitting there in the guardhouse and he can hear outside the sounds of war. He can hear the screams of his countrymen. He can hear the roar of fire as the city is set on fire. He can hear the temple collapsing. Jerusalem is not big. Uh, it's not big today, and it was really not big then. And so in the middle of everything crumbling, and remember, this is a, this is a deeply theological problem as well as a personal problem because for Israel, the center of God's purposes and plans is the temple. It's Jerusalem. It's the king. And all of that is falling down as he writes. And so he writes to a people who uh, are in despair. They're, they're losing hope. But before he does that, he spends a lot of time saying some hard things to his countrymen. And what he essentially says is, you all been hoping in the wrong things. And that actually is a, is a major theme. It may be the theme of the book of Jeremiah. God's people are supposed to be a covenant people. They're supposed to be in a grace relationship with God and keep his law as a way to reflect his character in the world. They keep breaking the law. The prophets are like covenant lawyers who are coming and prosecuting Israel. And Jeremiah says again and again, look, you, you guys are looking to everyone but God, to fix this. You're going to Egypt. You're going to Assyria. You're making treaties. You're doing political deals. You're finding hope in all the wrong places. And now it's over. So maybe before we even look at this passage, maybe one of the places where we need to think about hope is... Am I looking for hope in the wrong places? And if you're here tonight and you're struggling to find hope, and maybe you're in your own prison of hopelessness, maybe there's something going on in your life where you just cannot fathom how you could have hope in this, how it could be any differently, maybe, just maybe, God in his severe mercy has permitted this bad situation, even this hopeless feeling you might feel as we head into December, maybe he has allowed it perhaps 
for you to realize that you've been hoping in the wrong things? That's something I've had to ask myself as I've struggled with my own uh, grasping for hope. So after he says those hard things, he, he comes back with a word of promise to them. He says, Behold, the days are coming. I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. He, he says, look, I know everything looks hopeless right now in your life. But there will be a day when I will keep my promise. And, and that is the heart of biblical religion right there, family. Is that God is a God who makes promises and God is a God who keeps promises. And if I ended right now, that would be the message tonight, is that's where our hope is, in the promises of God. God makes promises, God keeps promises. God promises Adam, I'm going to send you a deliverer. He's going to bruise the serpent's heel. He promises Abraham. He's going to bless the nations through his family. He promises Jacob, the scepter or the kingdom of God will not depart from Judah, from uh, the, the descendants of David. He promises David that a great king will come from his family. He promises the exiles, all the ends of the earth shall be the salvation of God. God is a promise-making God, and God is a promise-keeping God. But what is his promise? And this is where some of these ancient texts that, that speak so powerfully to us across the centuries take a little bit of work to kind of build a bridge from them to where we are tonight. And, and this is one of those Passages. What is the promise that God makes to the people of God? He says, In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David. What he's saying is that he will bring a leader, a righteous branch, a king, a Messiah from the family line of David. The Gospel of Matthew makes it clear. Jesus Christ is that Messiah. And then he says, he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. That is what a good king of Israel was supposed to do, execute righteousness and justice. It's no surprise that when Jesus Christ comes as the son of David, as the branch of David, as the king of the kingdom of God, the first thing he does is walk into a synagogue, pick up a scroll from Isaiah 61, and read it where he says, I have come to set the captives free, to liberate the oppressed. In other words, I am that king. I've come to do just that. And then God promises, in those days, Judah will be saved. He says, look, I know it doesn't look like it right now, but one day I will rescue you. I'll deliver you. And then he says, Jerusalem will dwell securely, and this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So the last part of the promise is God says, look, I am going to change the name of Jerusalem 
And that would be significant to someone with a biblical mindset because when you change the, the name of someone, you change their identity. So he's saying, I'm going to change the identity of the people of God, and the new identity is going to be the Lord is your righteousness. It's a prophecy about the church. He's saying there will come a day in the new covenant when I will send my son. He will become your righteousness. He will pay for your sins. He will embrace you, adopt you into the family of God. And now your righteousness will not be your works, but the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's my promise, he says. Now, what do we do with all that? What would it mean to the church? What is the promise to us on this side of the coming of Christ? Well, I think God says, look, this is my promise. I promise to send you Jesus, and I have. He established the kingdom of God. He's come to save you. He'll give you a new identity as children accepted because of his work on the cross. That's his promise. And if we pull back one more step, maybe we could summarize this promise like this. I will come into the world to save you. And that's what he did. He has come into the world to save us. But what, what does that really say to Reverend Arnold as he prepares for a funeral of some little boy shot in front of Waggles at 2 o'clock in the morning at point blank range with a Glock? What does this say to a single woman who does not want to spend the holidays alone? What does it pray, say to a couple praying to be pregnant what does it say to someone who's not sure their business is going to make it through the year? What does all this wonderful theology say, this epic soaring trajection of, of hope and biblical language? How do we grab onto it and find our hope? hard. It's really hard to do. I'm struggling to do it myself. But I think it has something to do with this. I think it begins with an acknowledgement of feeling hopeless. Wherever in your life you have that feeling, and if you don't have that feeling, that's wonderful. But if there's a part of your life where you feel hopeless, I, I think it just begins with naming it. That's what the scriptures do. It names the experiences of the people of God, of just saying, I do not have hope for my marriage tonight. I do not have hope that working this out with my ex-wife is going to end well. I do not have hope that my mentally ill father 
is going to make it. I think that's where it starts, with the naming of whatever part of your life you feel hopeless in. And then I think you ponder. I wish I could say now, now write these down. Here are the three things you do to leave here tonight with hope. I, I, I think we'd have a much larger church if I could do that. <laughs> I don't think there are three things you can do to leave here with hope. I think that's why we have Advent is because we take these soaring, epic truths, this wonderful belief in the story of redemption. We come into it with all our mess and goofiness and pain, and we ponder that. We ponder it early in the morning in Scripture. We ponder it in our small groups. We ponder it maybe the last thing at night instead of watching yet another a show on Netflix, we, we turn it off and we go outside and we read a devotional or we, we pray. We, we work at finding hope. And maybe if, if, if we're really in a, a, a prison of despair, maybe we, we grab a friend and, and we become real honest about, about that. I think that's why we're here tonight. To wrestle to find hope. Because it's not easy. And our hope as the people of God, our hope is that uh, what we've learned over the centuries as the people of God is that there's just something about doing the practices of the people of God over and over and over and over again that connects us with the hope. So we come to the table. We hear the incredible singing. We confess our sins. We pray pray our prayers. That we might find hope. Now, there's a, an interesting quirk in this story, and we'll, we'll kind of wrap up with this, but Jeremiah does something very odd just before everything comes down. He goes out and buys a farm. <laughs> now, I'm not an expert in real estate, but my hunch is, is that when your city is burning... The real estate business is not good. But Jeremiah is sitting in prison. He can't get out. The armies are coming over the walls. Fires everywhere. People are screaming. And Jeremiah, call, I don't know how you did it then. He calls his real estate broker. And he says, uh, look, I want to buy a farm. And he does. You can read about it. Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah never comes back. What is he doing? Hope. He is saying when he buys that farm from his cousin, Jeremiah 32, I'm not making this up. He is saying, someday one of my descendants is going to come back here and settle because I believe the promises of God. 
And I think that's something we all can do as we reach for hope, as we receive hope, as we wait for hope, as we do the practices of the people of God in the hope of finding hope. We could do one practical thing that moves us towards God's future. We could do something prophetic, something that makes no sense, something radical, something stupid. We could do one thing that would almost say to the heavens, I refuse to be hopeless. I'm buying a farm. <laughs> I love that picture. The flames are engulfing him and he's signing the paper. I own a farm. <laughs> I'm not giving up. What could that be for you? One illustration, and we'll end, of what it was for one man. Uh, Charles Finney was a great revivalist, great abolitionist, great founder of Oberlin College in, the, I guess, the 19th century. And he was also a man of great hope. And he was called to preach to a farming community that had been experiencing drought for a long time. And, of course, in those days, that meant that the farmers' livelihoods were uh, at great risk. And so... They said, Brother Finney, could you come in and preach? And at the end, could you pray for uh, rain? We haven't seen rain in months. So he preaches this great sermon. He gets in. And then then he says, bow your heads. And uh, he prays for rain. He pours his heart out to the Lord for rain. And then when he says amen, the people look up. And he's got an umbrella. What's your umbrella?